welcome everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Nick Rowley. I'm the moderator for this evening. I'm an adjunct professor at the uh, Sydney Democracy Network. Um, before we commence, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. We are in a beautiful, modern building, named after an important Aboriginal leader. And although Sydney is Australia's oldest university, this land has been a place of learning for more than 50,000 years. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. All of us are only here for a short while, but what we think and what we contribute can endure. The Sydney Democracy Network is a creative group of researchers, activists, policymakers, and citizens concerned with the future of democracy. And the way we like to conduct events is possibly a little bit different. Uh, there won't be any PowerPoints, there won't be any X and Y axes, and we're not looking at a very technical series of presentations. I want uh, the people in this room feel that they've given an hour of their time of evening and engaged in an interesting and stimulating uh, conversation uh, and possibly gone away and thought about things in a slightly different way. Also hosting this evening is the Sydney Finance Institute, which is young and just celebrated its second birthday. It's directed by Professor Jim McCallum and David Schlossberg. And its aim is to bring together collaborative teams to work on a range of questions at the intersection of environment and society. And one of the Institute's most active groups has been the network on climate change and society. Other research networks focus on cities, sustainable business, and the future of food. Some of them I know that SEI has been deliberating on just a matter of minutes ago. Um, and the SCI website includes publications, blog posts, and upcoming events, including something that was on the backdrop as you were coming in, which is the launch of what I believe to be a really important book uh, by Christopher Wright. Uh, his book on climate change capitalism and corporations is going to be launched on the 19th of October here at the university, and I encourage people uh, to come along to that. It's good to have Chris here in the audience as well. Um, and there's also a talk coming up by an eminent writer, academic and communicator, Rob Nixon, who's the Rachel Carson Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin, and the author of Slow Violence and the Environment of Nepal uh, on the 21st of October. That's the end of my preamble and all the plugs for various institutes that are behind this evening. Um, in the first part of this evening, we're going to have four 10-minute presentations from each of our panelists, followed by perhaps around about an hour of questioning and deliberation. I'll look to moderate the that and then bring questions and contributions in from you in the audience. And I will repeat this 
once we've heard from our panelists. But please keep it in mind when you listen to what they have to say. Please frame your questions on the basis of what we've heard and what we are discussing. And please keep your questions short. Uh, it's just polite to do that because we get more questions in and we get more vibrant interaction. So please keep those points in mind. But as I say, like the school, school making, I will repeat, repeat those points. And I've asked each panellist to focus on three things they believe that we need to understand about COP21 in Paris, which is coming up in December. It's important to potential and the, and the implications of a global agreement on climate change. Now, the Paris meeting is the latest in what have now been 20 UN climate change conferences, or COPs. I'm going to try and make this an acronym free zone. If there's an acronym spoken by anybody here, I'm going to ask them to spell it out if, if we don't know. So everybody, whether the INPC or COP or MOP or whatever, ECMP or whatever else, then they actually articulate what it means. But a COP is a conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And some of these meetings have been more important than others. The first was in Berlin in 95, of course, Kyoto in 97, where the Kyoto Protocol was agreed. And then Copenhagen in 2009, something that Sinclair and I have a lot to do with in our role in the Copenhagen Climate Council, trying to build momentum that would lead to uh, an agreement at Copenhagen in 2009. What we hoped to get was a legally binding agreement post-2012, uh, and what we actually got was a 14-paragraph accord. Not good enough, but not nothing. And then COP17 in Durban. 2011, which is really the primary reason why they're now in such focus on Paris in just a few months' time. Because that is where the focus was firmly placed on 2015. The conference agreed to a binding deal comprising all countries, which will be prepared by 2015 and will take effect by 2020. That's the job that the negotiators have that are going to be turning up in the French capital. Much has changed since Copenhagen, I think much of it actually will make an agreement far easier to achieve. Just quickly say five things. The problem is not, in, in many places, the problem is no longer seen in abstract terms about what may happen in the future. It's increasingly been seen, climate change has been seen as a real and present danger, and that is brought about, sadly, by events. By things like Hurricane Sandy, the current California drought, um, Hurricane uh, Typhoon Hainan in the Philippines. These are real events that have occurred that have been extremely expensive and severe, and of course very costly in terms of human lives. Secondly, um, effective climate policy is also seen as a means to further reduce long term environmental, societal, economic, and security risks. And just today, the Climate Council produced, produced an excellent report uh, by former Chief of Defence Staff here in Australia, just looking at the whole question of <coughs> security implications of uh, climate change. It's something that when I worked uh, at, uh, in Whitehall in the UK, people were very, very focused on because if you look at some of the areas of um, uh, great tension in the world, and then you look at the three or four degree warming. It's only going to exacerbate 
those problems. Thirdly, and I'll be quick, uh, the politics in China and the US has shifted markedly in terms of their domestic policy commitments and their bilateral agreements. Fourthly, simply a matter of process, and I know Robin will probably say a bit about this, but the whole um, intended nationally determined contribution process, the INDC process, means that it's not all left to the negotiation when you arrive in Paris. States are having to declare their hands early as a basis for negotiation, a basis for what they are willing to commit to in terms of emissions reductions prior to going to the actual negotiation uh, in Paris. And fifthly, and I speak as a bit of a sort of frank part here, it's held in France. Um, uh, the president of the COP, the former prime minister of France, Laurent Fabius, um, and the whole dynamic behind the Paris Peace, and I wouldn't underestimate that quite what a failure of French diplomacy would mean to the French. would be an enormous loss of that. And they're investing an enormous amount in trying to get the dynamic right behind this extremely complex and challenging multilateral uh, negotiation. Let me just introduce the panel and then I will keep quiet. Firstly, we have Professor Robin Eckersley. She's published widely in the fields of environmental politics, political theory, and international relations, with a, with a special focus on the ethics and governance of climate change. She has a deep understanding of the nature of processes that lie behind international environmental groups. Robin will speak first for 10 minutes. Secondly, we'll have Emma Hurd. She's the new chief executive of the Investor Group on Climate Change, and previously she was director. Uh, I'm tempted just to articulate the acronym actually, but I'm going to read it out. She was previously director of emissions and environment, commodities, carbon, and energy at Westpac, which is something like DE Kirk's equal. Something like that. Um, and Emma has worked on climate change in the financial services sector for more, more than 15 years, so she brings a lot of practical experience. Thirdly, Tim Flannery, um, who I think people will be familiar with, and he's uh, the author of the world's second best selling book on climate change, uh, Behind Our Balls in the Truth. Uh, he was chairman of the Copenhagen Climate Council prior to the 2009 meeting, in the former study of the year. He's chief, chief counsellor at the Climate Council and has just published Atmosphere of Hope. After this uh, event, he will be signing a copy of Atmosphere of Hope at the back of the hall, just through that door. And one of my jobs at the end is to get him through the crowd to get him And lastly, we have Nicola Casula, who's the Climate and Energy Campaigner at Greenpeace, Australia Pacific, and has been deeply involved in the campaign against the coal mine, coal mine, coal mine in. Queensland's Valley Basin, and hopefully I know that you've heard you've to speak on these matters before, I think you will give us a real first reality and the direct things that need to be stopped as well as the things that need to be uh, enabled. Um, I will be very harsh. I want it to be 10 minutes, and I'm going to sit on this stool, and in the ninth minute I'm going to stand up, and that should make you feel like it's time to wind up. Um, so, uh, without further ado, Robin. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I've got three points to make, and I've got ten minutes to make in. It was a time for our presentation that's probably 
along the line of improvising around a zombie regime. The parties have been negotiating for more than two decades at a glacial pace, and they've just reached so much deadlock. And most of that is about a failure to reach a principled approach to burden sharing, particularly between developed countries and major emerging economies in the developing world. The burden sharing principles of the regime, which were struck back in 1982, and the long phrase of equity and common but different is responsibility and respective capability. CBDR for short, and you bear this, I'll just say fairness, okay? So there's been a big lockdown there. So what we've seen is improvisation around that. There's finally found a way forward by thinking around it. There's a big rock in the way in place, what do you do? You bang your head against it, or you step back and walk around. And that's what they're doing. So the first point is, what we're seeing is a move away from what I think is gold standard towards health differentiation and a softer type of legal connection. By the gold standard, this is what we really need. We need the scientists to lay out the carbon budget, how much more, uh, how much concentration of greenhouse gases we can afford to put in the atmosphere to hold warming below what is the political consensus of two degrees that it probably should be 1.5. And then we allocate that to all the parties, and they'll adopt that as targets and timetables, and that will be legally binding with consequences and failure. That's the legal standard, that's the gold standard, that's not going to happen. And it never happened. Kyoto was a legally binding treaty, but it was still self differentiation, prices which showed what their purpose were. So when we got to Copenhagen, that was a kind of a complete inversion of gold standard, a bottom-up pledge and review approach expressing a non-binding political cause. What we expect to see in Paris is something much closer than, to that inversion of the gold standard, although it will be a slightly hybrid treaty, it will probably be a treaty within the meaning of the Vienna Convention um, of treaties, but the really core part of this agreement, the intended national contribution, will probably be held somewhere where they're not legally binding. So this process will try and set up um, a framework that will be permanent. So we know what treaties are going to say, they work to be dynamic, with regular cycles of review and upward ratcheting of commitment, not just mitigation, but kind of finance and adaptation and technology transfer throughout the building. And so we'll go onward and upwards. So improvising around this deadlock by allowing each country to determine what is their ambitions. So I call it a global show and tell regime. But I'm worried about what they're going to show and what they're going to tell is going to be so cherry-picked and so self-serving that it's not going to have the dynamic that will drive ambition ever onward and upward. So my second point is to reflect on the habits of self-differentiation. And the best way to do that is to look at the 10 national contributions that have been submitted so far. Last year, at the conference in Peru at Lima, the NGOs let fly with a big hoop when it was finally agreed that parties had to justify the fairness and ambition of the national contributions. We thought, oh, that's going to be interesting. Let's look at how they defend what they put forward. And I carefully read them all. And there's really only one country, and that's Switzerland, who's actually taken that seriously, looked at a whole lot of different metrics, addressed it, and then looked at where it sits amongst the industrialized countries, what the science requires. And for me, that as it happens, the most ambitious target of buying a 50% reduction of emissions from a 99 base by 2030. And it's downhill from there. And the most woeful of all, of course, is which country can we get? Thank you. <laughs>
problem of sharing is you not only that, when you look at transparency and verification and compliance debates, it's all stopping something. It will be non-punitive, there will be no sanctions, it's going to be facilitated. So how did this show and tell regime going to drive ambition? So let's get to my next point. And by the way, it's interesting watching the Warfare language. Up until the Warsaw Conference in 2013, the party was all about their international commitments. After that conference, it changed to nationally determined contributions, and the intended nationally determined contributions were supposed to be subjected to a review prior to Paris, but that was quietly dropped as well. Instead, um, UNHCR see that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change will do a review of the law and add up the mitigation ambition and work out how much of a shortfall there will be. And believe me, there's going to be a very significant shortfall. So the third question is, the issue is how to make virtue of necessity. We cannot start again. We cannot build a new regime or design a perfect bit of architecture to know what. We have to improvise. And improvisation, I think, is the key word. And we've seen that all over the time of Asian contacts, that is, at all levels of governance and transnational initiatives, and the fear of improvisation, which began immediately after the train wreck of Paris, and hang on to that train metaphor, because that, was the rise of this idea of vertical carbon. That if we used all the, the no reserves of fossil fuels in the world, we would shoot way past two degrees, but something really scary, well beyond that, to a hot, warm, telescopic planet. And so this idea unleashed the world's investment movement. And that happened all over the place, to the point where the World Bank no longer made pockets of development finance for coal-fired stations except in extreme circumstances, nor does the US. The Norwegian sovereign wealth fund has now withdrawn from coal investment. And pension funds are reconsidering how employees cater their fiduciary duties and their investments and so forth. So that's one really exciting improvisation. Inside the region, it's very difficult to improvise. They must all be tightly trained, they can't do jazz. <laughs> so, the way I looked at it, um, if this is going to be a show and tell regime, then we have to go for transparency plus, really intense. So it's not just about um, providing national gratitude terms of contributions, but making sure that all parties and the world, global public, national public, can actually see where you stand in the human development index, in your GDP, your GDP per capita, your cumulative emissions, your per capita emissions, your annual emissions, your future growth emissions, so everyone can judge. Now, finished, I think I've got two minutes left.
So if ever there was a time for citizen mobilization, it is a lead up to and everyone who is after Paris.
in terms of understanding how we're going to get to that two degree target, which not everyone even agrees on in the first place. So that's my second point. Non-state actors are incredibly important. And, and for the investment community, I mean, there's a whole range of initiatives that have been underway for a number of years, and I'm, I'm quietly confident no one in this room is aware of, except maybe three people, because I can see them in the audience and I've dealt with them. And, and that's a whole range of investment initiatives. So, for example, I mean, you might not know that um, 12 months ago, 376 institutional investors representing over $24 trillion in assets under management all made commitments around reducing emissions from their investments and called on stronger action from governments around climate change. This is one of the issues that's in place to invest the climate change statement. There's also a national registry or international registry, the Low Carbon Investment Registry, which tracks the activities that investors are voluntarily lodging around what they are doing to help facilitate the transition to a low carbon economy, which has got thousands of registered activities, everything from green bonds to, to, to investment activities to decarbonisation of their investment portfolios. Um, to green loans, to wind farms, everything that they're doing, trying to drive the message, trying to show that money is needed. I mean, you might say, yes, it's a small portion of the global economy, but it's a small and growing fast portion of the global economy. Money is moving, carbon is being priced, the transition is underway from a private sector capitalist perspective. This is something I'm happy. So non-state actors are important. The third point I would make is, Yes, it's noisy and confusing, and there are millions of acronyms, and the UN seems to speak different language to the rest of the known world. But never underestimate the, the, the impact that the intangible can have on tangible outcomes in the economy. If you get a strong outcome, um, you know, everyone will disagree with the definition of strong, but if you get a reasonably strong outcome at Paris, then you will see an acceleration in activities off the back of it. You will see governments being slightly greater. You will see companies being more prepared to come out and say, yes, we support two degrees, yes, we support decarbonisation. You will see a, a, a rapid acceleration of the movement of money. All of those things, all of the non-state actors who are doing things will feel emboldened in their actions and in their ability to talk about their actions. So the actual binding letter of the law of the agreement is incredibly important, but it's not the whole game. So my third point is definitely the intangible is just as important as the tangible. And I think I come in an minutes, so I'm only going to get to the whole. So that's, that's my three points. <laughs> Emissions from uh, the fossil fuels for energy. 
Kadesh and Saul. So we're a very, very interesting moment. I mean, a, a cautious optimism, a cautious optimist may uh, think that that announcement means that 2014 is the big year for emissions growth, and we're, we're decoupling, we're getting off that uh, worst case scenario trajectory. So Paris is happening at about this time. I don't believe that Paris media alone is driving that because the commitments, obviously, uh, from Paris are not going to start kicking into 2020. But you can see that there's a whole lot of things happening at once uh, uh, through, uh, through this period. I remember hearing our raw speak about Paris making and he uh, referred to it not as the gold standard, as the Bitcoin standard uh, for, for agreement on, on climate change. But I think there's some truth to that, as you pointed that out, Robin. Um, but I think it's also important to understand, or try to come to understand, the synergies between this political process, which is painful and tedious and ill-defined and, and there's lots of the Bitcoin standard. Uh, and the synergies between that and what's happening outside the political process, as, as you mentioned. They, there is a, a mysterious synergy that, that seems to feed one feeds the other. So incremental change in one area feeds onto greater ambition in the other, and that reinforces then uh, the need uh, for, for more regulatory change and government change. So I think Paris is, is really important. You know, on face value, we would say that, that by the we hope that the, the reductions that are agreed there will get us on trajectory, which is more likely to be towards three degrees more at the end of the century rather than the current four. So that's good. Getting off that trajectory is, is, is important. It's not the end of the battle. We know that we're going to be dealing with this issue for another 50 years or more. Um, but that idea, I think from that perspective, we can say that Paris is already a success. It's a success in getting us off the worst case scenario of issues trajectory. But the fact of the matter is we've already had seen the consequences of 0.9 degree of warming. Um, we have muted to one and a half degrees of warming just by the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere at the moment. So if we stop the meeting tonight, we will we'd still see one and a half degrees of warming. It is, in my view, pretty much impossible that we will avoid two degrees of warming. We'll see, we'll see two degrees, and if we're very unlucky, more. Um, I want to just turn now to technology, because I think that new technologies offer an opportunity, a new tool in terms of uh, dealing with the climate problem that we haven't had before, haven't considered before. Uh, in the book that I've, I've just written, I've coined a new term called the third way, and the third way is uh, a group of technologies and methods and approaches uh, to the climate problem that work by strengthening Earth's systems self-regulatory processes by drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, so enhancing the natural drawdown or mimicking in some ways the natural drawdown and storing CO2. They're incredibly varied technologies. They run from the biological, we understand well, such as tree planting and biochar production, the sort of things that these kind of governments do under the red action, uh, through to seaweed farming, which has huge potential, uh, and the chemical processes, and they include carbon negative concrete manufacture. Concrete's 5% of total emissions at the moment. So, going from a positive, a positive uh, technology to a negative one that absorbs CO2 into the concrete fabric is very important. Through the direct manufacture of plastics from atmospheric CO2, uh, through to carbon fibers, very exciting announcement made just three weeks ago about the capacity to manufacture carbon fibers from atmospheric CO2 at one tenth the cost for carbon manufacturing processes. So, a whole series of things. Uh, 
in, in that technological basket that we could look at. I tried to work out what sort of contribution they might be making in a very, doing a very conservative analysis. Uh, why is that 2050? It seems to me that they could be drawing out about 40% of the emissions we're currently putting into the atmosphere that they could serve the rest of it by that time. So 15 million tons or so of CO2. It's almost enough to drop atmospheric concentrations of CO2 by one part per million. Um, but that's not going to happen unless we start investing in those technologies now. We know from wind and solar how long it takes for new technologies to reach maturity. And we're talking here about technologies and approaches which are either desktop studies or immature technologies. And just to give you a sense of the scale, uh, biochar is one of the older industries in this space. Current production of biochar globally is only on the order of 1,000 tonnes per annum. We're talking about gigatons to make a difference. So we're a long way. So we're going to need 20 or 30 years of investment, research and development to bring those technologies to maturity if we hope to be reducing atmospheric concentrations of CO2 by one part of the million uh, by 2050. Now, for some of you, this will sound a bit like science fiction, but I just ask you to think about 2050. I've tried to do it, and my imagination fails me. The only way I can come to it is to say, let me imagine I'm living in 1915 rather than 1950, um, and what would I have seen? 1915, the world of empires that have existed for centuries, forceful vehicles on the streets, cavalry charges still in battle, mainly the first five times in the air, but little else. 1950, and I'm not a single communist country by 1915. 1950, um, you'd have nuclear weapons, jet aircraft, half the world living under communism. It looked like sci fi to someone in 1915. Um, the pace of change is only accelerated uh, in the 21st century, so I think we need to consider these technologies seriously and make sure that we leave space for them to be part of the solution in the long term. Because without them, two degrees is unachievable in my view. So post Paris, I hope you would like to really discreet divides into two ways. One, standing down as hard as we possibly can on emissions, particularly from the burden of fossil fuel. And the second stream, which will involve building a new technological base across a very broad section of our economy, much broader than just at the moment. Uh, with a view to uh, optimising that fall down um, in the decades to come when we're really going to need it. Um, the other thing we need to do through this period is maintain our hope. I think the next decade is going to be the very toughest decade for those interested in climate change uh, that we'll have. The reason is Paris will kick in 2020. We won't be able to cut emissions as fast as we'd all like. There'll be no uh, hope of building third-way technologies to scale over a decade. Uh, so between now and 2025, the biggest resource we need is optimism and hope, I think. And uh, after that, we might start seeing results. Thank you, Tim. There's lots to discuss on that in terms of how different members of the panel might view the contribution. We won't do that now, we'll do that afterwards. Um, Nicole, thank you. Thank you, and thank you all uh, for being here on Wednesday night. The weather makes it slightly nicer to be indoors, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, so, look, there's much to things. Humanity faces a threat unprecedented in our time on this pale blue dot in an obscure part of galaxy. The 10 hottest years on record have occurred since 1998. The hottest ever was 2014, and the first half of 2015 has gone down to the hottest first half year in recorded history. There's the heat waves around India, Pakistan, 
Pacific Island nations are evacuating as sea levels rise and threatening their homes and contaminating groundwater. And extreme weather events are getting more frequent and more lethal. The negotiations at Paris for the powers cut helps stem the tide and prevent climate change irrevocably harming our planet and our ability to exist peacefully on it. We've been asked uh, all of us here to present three key insights. Uh, so here's the first of mine. Number one, we're headed for the cliff, but a bit slower than before. As of the 1st of September, countries responsible for 65% of global emissions uh, have set public emissions reduction targets for Paris. Carbon Action Tracker and NGOs looked at the top 16 countries in that list, which represent about 64.5%, um, and found that the pledges fall significantly short of what is required. Global emissions with these commitments are in fact to be between 53 and 57 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2025, and 55 to 59 gigatons by 2030. Additional reductions of 12 to 15 gigatons by 2025, and 17 to 21 gigatons by 2030 are needed for emissions to be consistent with a two-degree pathway. So in other words, based on current trends, there is little chance of keeping global warming to that two-degree pathway, which as we've already noted is itself uh, a controversial target. So who are the worst performers? Um, these are countries that whose commitments are considered not fair, not a fair contribution from any perspective. So these are um, some of them include Canada, Japan, New Zealand, Singapore, South Korea, Russia, and yes, Australia. So it's true that we're still waiting on commitments from about 140 countries, including the next 10 biggest emitters: India, Brazil, Iran, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Thailand. Turkey, Ukraine, and Pakistan. Um, but these only account for another further 18%. And of course, setting goals and actually meeting them in practice are two completely separate things. There is still a big gap between current policies and stated ambitions. In many countries where emissions reduction targets have improved, the policies that govern action on the ground necessary to meet those goals have not been implemented. Australia, to pick on our country again as a typical example, while our emissions reductions goals are still inadequate, in my opinion, current policies to direct action emissions reduction fund will not be adequate to achieve even those modest goals. So what do we actually need from Paris? Some necessary components, I think, include stronger emissions targets and the protection of forests that put us on a critical path to staying under two degrees. We need a legally binding agreement that keeps countries to those promises and five-year commitment periods that allow for increased ambition and that will prevent countries from backsliding on those commitments. Five-year review periods should be emphasized hard enough. They don't compel countries to table new and more ambitious commitments. So that's not to say that there has not been progress. And uh, you know, I think, uh, I don't aim to be uh, sort of the pessimist in the room here, because as you'll see later, I do think there is a lot of force for hope. Clearly, the fact that the world's biggest emitters, including China, the EU, uh, and the US, have publicly committed to emissions reductions already put us ahead of where we were with Copenhagen. And that moment is certainly a cause for optimism, but much more remains to be done. Point two you can't sell a man a handgun and then accept no responsibility for his suicide. The UN climate talks only look at half the picture. 
emissions from domestic sources. So this completely lets off the hook exploiting countries like Australia, whose coal, oil and gas exports are a major driver of the climate crisis. The UNFCCC process allows a country like Australia, for example, to pay that it's committed to its duty target, but at the same time to issue funds for an unprecedented expansion of the domestic coal mining industry. A major campaign in the Greenpeace I've been working on this year has been the campaign to save the Great Barrier Reef uh, from the threat posed by the opening up of the Galilee coal basin in central Queensland, headed up by Adani Group's Carmichael Coal Mine. If all of the coal mines uh, that are proposed for the Galilee basis are allowed to be burnt, they're coal exported and burnt overseas, the world will fail to meet its emissions reduction obligations. So the choice could not be clearer. We can either have Galilee basin coal, or we can have a healthy reef and a safer climate, but we can't have both. The UNFCCC process allows a country like the US to commit significant reductions in its own emissions, but allow the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline that will open up the Alberta tar sands in Canada, one of the world's uh, worst polluting fossil fuel reserves in the world, and subject to a massive campaign of local community opposition. We don't, of course, treat other harmful substances in this comically absurd way. We don't say that preventing harm to children from cigarettes is only the responsibility of the consumer and not of the tobacco industry as a whole which sells the product. It's both illegal to sell cigarettes to a minor and it's illegal to buy them if you're underage. We don't say that buying and possessing heroin will certainly land you in jail, but harvesting poppies, processing the opium, and selling it for export overseas perfectly fine. So if we're serious about fighting climate change, exporting countries need to go beyond emissions targets and commit to decisions that limit the destructive trade in polluting fossil fuels. Governments can decide today to keep fossil fuel reserves in the ground by refusing, for example, to issue new permits, uh, to issue permits for new coal mines. Greg Hunt, who managed to keep his job as environment minister under the new Turnbull government, has the reapproval of the Carmichael coal mine sitting on his desk right now as we speak. If he's serious about fighting climate change as he claims, he should end this failed project once and for all. And all governments around the world should support the Suva Declaration by Pacific Island countries, which calls for, among other things, a moratorium on the construction of new coal mines across the world. Number three, it's up to us. The challenge before us is unprecedented, but it is one that we absolutely have the power to meet. One of the most encouraging things about the climate change fight is the broad-based, global, powerful climate movement which is going from strength to strength every day. Millions of people around the world are mobilizing to protect the world's climate and its air and water for our generation and that of our children and their children after that. Farmers are standing shoulder to shoulder with indigenous peoples, with faith communities, with investor groups who are divesting from fossil fuels, with schools and universities, and with the coal workers who've been hung out to dry by an industry refusing to accept that it's internal decline. It's the power of that movement which has raised the heat on Paris, and which will give us the power to achieve meaningful action on the ground beyond the UNFCCC meeting in three months' time, and move towards a 100% renewable energy future, free of polluting fossil fuels. And, by the way, we know that a 100% renewable energy future is entirely possible, and not only that, it is absolutely necessary. 
Last Monday, Greenpeace International released the latest version of our Energy Revolution Scenario Report. Based on detailed modeling completed with the German Aerospace Center and leading global scientific bodies, the Energy Revolution Scenario provides a roadmap for how we can get to 100% renewables by 2050 by phasing out fossil fuels, moving to renewable electricity, decarbonizing transport and heating, and transitioning to clean technology in emissions-intensive industries. All of the necessary economic and technological tools are available to us right now. What we need is the political will and the popular support to get there. Our ability to achieve the latter and our insurance against the faltering of the former is dependent on the flourishing of a billion acts of courage across the world which will take the climate movement from strength to strength and achieve real change. As somebody who knows much more and knew much more about social change than me once said, few will have the greatness to bend history, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events. And the total of those acts will be written the history of this generation. When the time comes to write that history, we cannot, we will not go down as having failed to meet the challenge before us. It's time to get involved. And one of the best ways that we can get involved is by uh, mobilizing, by talking to our communities and attending the People's Climate March on November 29th. It's happening in Sydney and at uh, cities all over the world. So, hope to see you there. Thank you all very much for your uh, keeping to the rules and, and very clear in your presentations. Um, before we go to questions, there's just, uh, there are many things that we could kind of draw out from the contributions and the linkages between them. I'll leave it up to you. But I just want to ask each of the panelists um, a somewhat different angle, a somewhat different question. In that, um, we had, um, with the city of Moxie, the Swatchmates, to host a roundtable with Tony Hedegaard, the president of the UN meeting in Copenhagen and the EU Climate Commission. And she gave a fantastic presentation. It was a very rich conversation between the people around the room. She also finished her comments simply saying that prior to Copenhagen, many of us thought that all the pieces of the puzzle were there and we were going to be able to put them all in place and business was engaged and we had the convenient truth and we had Nobel Prizes for these government panel on climate change and alcohol warming. Really, there was an active momentum behind success in Copenhagen, and yet it didn't happen. When you had 188 nations coming together and 115 heads of state, we couldn't actually reach that agreement, and it was seen as a failure. Certainly in Australia, Copenhagen is shorthand for the failure of international climate negotiations. There's not a whole lot of negative consequences which we don't need to, to, to relive now. But what I'd like each of the members of the panel to do is to sort of flip things on the head a bit and say, well, let's actually read the newspapers just before Christmas. And what people are reporting is that Paris was another train wreck. What implications do each member of the panel think that that will have in terms of Kind of politics, in terms of the way the public responds to another failure of the international agreement, how it might affect investment, etc. I don't want to be too gloomy, but let's just look at what the world might be if Paris actually proves to be disappointing as Copenhagen was. 
I'm interested in that, but I'm looking at the colour because you were at that meeting. And one of the things that Connie characterised, and everybody else characterised, is the difference between Copenhagen and Paris is everybody had so much invested in Copenhagen that when it was just the Copenhagen call, everybody was just deflated. They were deflated. Their hopes had been raised so high, and what they got was something that was so much simply that, that the product would be committed to the And people felt detached and tired and walked away. Well, Connie was saying she feels Paris has seemed to be uh, uh, unsuccessful. Is that people actually get more motivated and become more angry and more frustrated and actually just push the international side and say, well, I don't have to work. Multilateralism is bad, and therefore we just have to be a lot clearer about the politics of climate change. Nicola, what do you think about that? I think since since February, there have been two trends relating to climate and, and government. One has been an increasing uh, understanding of the risks posed by climate change and, and an increasing public support for significant action, certainly in this country and, and but I think broadly across the world. This one. The second has been a massive loss of trust, if any more was possible, in established institutions and in particular in governments to deal with the major problems that we're facing. And that's partly because of the global financial crisis, partly in Europe where you see um, massive uh, rebellion against austerity regimes. But those, those two trends, I think, are key in understanding what's going to happen. And I think, yeah, broadly, that, that assessment is correct. People are going to be pretty angry. Um, and I think the other thing you didn't have is, is, this, is the climate movement. So the climate movement will continue, but people will increasingly look to other solutions and I think potentially we will see a, a very radicalization of responses uh, because even though the expectations have been built up quite as much, there is a sense around the world that Paris is a key moment. Um, so there will be, I think, I think that movement will, will continue to grow, but um, you know, we'll, we'll take an edgier form, shall we say. And you know, there's an open debate about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I have my view. Um, but I'm sure all of us do. Yeah. Well, I think we know the answer to the question with some small examples of what happened. With Copenhagen, just the report coming out, what we saw was delay at, at dealing with a whole lot of emissions reductions opportunity that led to four more years of the worst gas emissions uh, trajectory, worst gas scenario trajectory, and only in 2014, that's done now. So that cost us. I don't know, 200 gigatons of carbon to the atmosphere, probably. It's a very significant part of the global budget. And in Australia, we saw what happened when the carbon price was ground back, carbon tax was ground back. We were really making dents in our, in our emissions from burning of fossil fuels. All of those have been lost in, in the, the, the time since the, uh, the, the carbon tax was abolished. Um, and you can imagine on the global scale, think about Europe saying, oh, is it really worth penalising our industries for this? And China saying, well, we've got this trial scheme, so we're just going to look at costs and there's nothing serious happening. So it'll be more delayed. I think eventually innovation and technology will be now, but we run never close to that point where the point of no return, where it just becomes unfeasible. We're almost there now. We've moved to one and a half degrees. I don't think we've moved to two degrees. The delay of Paris might be another five years or more. Uh, and at that point, this will be really, really Thank you, Tim. Um, it's half past seven. I'd like um, constraints to be a driver to um, innovation in your questions.
uh, I would like to finish at around about 10 past 8. Uh, people will be hungry and they want to eat. And these events can go on. And I don't want this one to go on. And that means that I want contributions and questions from the floor, as I've said, which are short and which are relevant to the subject at hand and what we've just heard. So can people make themselves known to me in the usual way, putting your hand up, if you have a question or a question. I might take three to start off with. Uh, we'll take Jessica Panagiris from Greenpeace, David Foster from uh, the Sydney Environment Institute, and the lady with a very nice grey hair on her back. Um, so Jess, you go first. Thank you so much um, for really, really thought-provoking presentation. Um, my question is, it sort of goes to technology, but it, it also goes beyond uh, energy as a source of uh, dangerous climate change. And I'm interested in your take on the role of forests because we do have kind of interesting, shiny new technology, but we also have very old technology, uh, which is forests, which store a huge amount of carbon, um, and their destruction leads to a huge amount of carbon emissions every year. And I'm interested in, in all of your perspectives on kind of what Paris might hold for forests, and also what role forests might play um, in tackling dangerous climate change. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks. All of the presentations really fantastic and uh, a great turnout, so I'm really happy about that. So here's my fear. My fear is that Paris is a success, but that it's actually a fiction and a failure. Right? Because we are going to see, not pledges, we're going to see promises, we're going to see aspirations that are purely fictional, right? like Australia's, which is not backed up by actual policy. So I can see if it's a failure, that people get pissed off and there's action and maybe you know, more action in the private sector. But if it's a success, then that success is fiction. Then what? Thank you, David. Could you say your name? Vivian Langford. I'm from Abora Houston with Beyond Zero Emission. That's my question on the media. We've just heard scarifying things. Tim, you're saying you're not going to make two degrees, so already. We've learned through the books before and many other scientists that there are tipping points that will come into play. That's why they've got the two degrees, that's already not safe. So, after that, there are tipping points, puts us into an uncontrollable situation. We've wasted a lot of years, maybe not wasted, but we've gone along doing what we can, delaying. And uh, Robert, you mentioned at the time that's never before to mobilise people. It's certainly society, I think, is kept quiet. I'm not hearing this very scary information. We've probably also um, spoke about that. So I want to know how people can mobilise now, before Paris, to get our media and our information gatekeepers, our cultural gatekeepers, to tell us what to do to get out of, for example, to buy our super declaration keeps holding the ground, those things to stop fossil fuel subsidies. So much and lots of things that we can demand of them and force them, you know, I'm not going to appreciate it, it's a pretty short time, but a rally on the 29th of November seems to be late to me. Mm -hmm. Vivian, thank you very much. Um, should we take a question on the forest first? Um, yeah.
forests and re reforestation, particularly in soil country, is an important part of these third-rate technologies. And without those third-rate technologies, we can lead to beyond two degrees in my view. But there are limits to the biosphere and the way it operates, particularly given the heavy demands on overall already. And I just want to illustrate with one point. At the moment, we're putting 40 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere per annum. What would it take, in, by way of reforestation, to draw one tenth of that back out of the atmosphere? So, to draw 40 gigatons back out. Effectively, you'd need to reforest an area the size of Australia, and uh, New York State hunt every year for 50 years, and at the end of that, you would have drawn out, on average, 4 gigatons of CO2 per year. But the temperature would increase even more rapidly because you've replaced a very bright, shiny surface of desert and grassland with a very dark green surface of forest canopy. And that changes the albedo, more sunlight is absorbed, and, and less is reflected in space, so it warms it. So the scale is a problem. I think that reforestation, particularly forests, is hugely, hugely important. But we can't rely on that to, to, to make up the, the shortfall. That would be one little bit of a whole series of technological challenges and methods that we use. Uh, to address the problem. So important, but not enough on itself. Um, Robin, in the end of the interview, you talked about the way in which um, parties beyond governments we engage business, etc. We had the New York Declaration on Forest, which came out of New York last year, something that was symbolically quite good, signed up by major uh, international businesses and states, again, the but clearly, as something that was orchestrated by the United Nations to put a focus on deforestation and halting deforestation and coming from the non-usual suspects. Um, maybe Robin, to what extent do you think that those sort of activities have any hope of actually leading to a reinvigoration of um, I'm going to say red plus, and I can't remember exactly what reduced emissions from forest deforestation, and forest degradation, deforestation and forest degradation plus, which is basically means whereby you you create a market for forest resources that are not exploited. Um, to what extent do you think Paris is achieving anything in that area? Well, the negotiations on red plus actually did quite well. I think. We often forget that there's another ecological crisis out there, and we were the sole climate one. We were the sole species extinction and biodiversity loss. We won't solve all of our problems like the buildup of garbage circulating in oceans and toxic waste. There's a whole lot of other things going on there. And I think we need to keep that from good chance that we've been more than two or three things, but with one move. So there's a bunch of good reasons to thank protect the forest. Um, True men came to you know, protect the forest for any other measure that worked. So, yeah, you know, I defer to team scientists to see that how much of scale we can do that and, and so forth. So, I think for the staff on the biodiversity protection and broader ecosystem support that we require, and I thought I'd be looking at using the term ecosystem services because it's utilitarian value, but it can serve a very valuable function. And the public, you know, people need to understand that climate change is not only part of the problem in town, and that we should address climate change in ways with an eye on the local problems. Essentially, we're going to take away this comment that I was going to make around the need to actually attribute economic value to both the re-establishment and the maintenance of forests. 
one of the interesting things about the Australian carbon market, both under the um, carbon price and under direct action, is that for the first time in Australia, we are attributing an economic value to the establishment of forests. We have created a market around forests, and it is actually functioning and successful. I mean, if we have a market value of um, just under $14 um, from a whole series of food direct action funds um, through a whole series of projects, a lot of which are around um, reforestation or avoided deforestation. So the ability to create policy frameworks which attribute economic value for environmental benefits should not be forgotten. So the, second, the second point I would make is that the other side of the equation is how do you reorient the global economy so it removes those current perverse incentives for deforestation as, a, as an economic um, development pathway for emerging economies. One of the major issues in our region is new deforestation activities emerging as an easy way of emerging economies of, of, of growing, um, particularly through industries like palm oil or the growth of agricultural products and services, economic, uh, the growth of urban environments more broadly. Unless you have an economic value attributed to holding on to those forests, or unless you find alternative economic development pathways through technology or other forms of industry, then you know, you're just contributing and exacerbating the problem. So, I mean, those are the two points I would make. Let's, let's, let's actually attribute value in hard terms, hard green terms, um, and let's also find new pathways as well that don't involve supreme insects and parts. Thanks, Emma. Um, Nicole, I'm not going to get you to reply to a question from the group. It's, it's just wrong. But I'm happy to get you to respond to, to David's point. Um, maybe the first response the point about the success for the symbols that's only and a whole of humans that won't end up in intended into a problem. Yeah, that is a really significant risk that exactly what you described, that you have uh, an agreement that is a success on paper that actually doesn't lead to the big emission reductions that we need, which is ultimately the proof uh, of, of, of whether we're making progress on climate change or not. Um, uh, this is why I think uh, the the pressure that we can put on those governments is going to be key. And so that's, that's the role of civil society, actually, to continue to, to, to keep the heat on governments and others that are responsible for this. Um, and the way that we do that is going to be by having engaged citizens who are willing to uh, join campaigns, you know, uh, engage with their MPs, uh, engage with government processes, and make sure that there is that bottom-up pressure so that uh, commitments that are uh, entered into uh, are actually seen through domestic policy. And it's difficult, right? I mean, we're talking about you know, five key processes, and actually, as far as the whole, uh, the whole you know, uh, process goes, it's much longer than that. And we know that political cycles are much shorter, and media cycles are even shorter still. So it's, it's a significant challenge. Um, but it's that, that sort of uh, power is the only way that, you know, historically positive social change has been achieved. Um, and I think that's, that's where we need to get now as well. Yeah, I mean, David, you're a little too cynical there. Um, if you look at the IMDCs and the places that individual countries have made, it's a very mixed bag. Um, we see in Australia have good reasons to feel that way here, but it looks pretty slow, and it is. But the UK has carbon budget rolling out for, is it 2027, 2028? And a lot of the parties have put forward um, contributions, as we're supposed to call them, only when they know that there's a policy package in place that can actually deliver it. And many countries take that very seriously. 
But there are some key countries I think that's really tricky, like the US. Um, President Obama has used the dangerous power because Congress is um, not going to pass anything under Obama's administration because too many Republicans don't believe there's a problem. So he's used the full limit of his executive power. He's introduced this clean um, climate, plan, climate plan plan and he's imposed this on the states but gives them flexibility as to how to do that and it's very retarded. So the problem is we're all lined up to litigate. And his name is an unconstitutional one. So maybe he's overreached the source of that, which is the Clean Air Act, enacted way back in the early 70s. But I think more or less it's going to hold. And Hillary will look after it. She, she was elected. By the way, she said she wants to support people. Uh, but if Republican uh, president gets in, then that's going to be interesting. But some of those that I talked to, talk to in Washington said, by the time that happens, it'll be too long in. If it's a matter of litigation, it'll be too difficult to turn down. And there is a very sporadic system. It's hard to get into the numbers that are hard to get rid of them. So they actually were a little bit more optimistic. So it's much more mixed. But that was to say that all that actually happens happens everywhere else. So I think to answer the first first question, that's about we need much more information richness. We can't rely on the INDCs because they're cherry picked and they're selective and they're hiding behind opaque data. If they were required to provide a lot more information on how the central repository, that would be a public resource. If they don't agree to that, then we'll find a way of developing that resource so we can properly judge and evaluate what different countries are doing. And that's how the politics is going to happen at the national level. Canada's doing more than you. Why aren't you doing that? And, you know, Australia is second on the human development index. It's in the top 20 major economies. At number 15, the aggregate emissions are at the top of the top in per capita emissions. If every country has got all the reasons to be going out ahead making a big difference, it's us, and we're not. But we get, most of the populations don't have that information to hand to understand how poorly we're performing. And so, the information is the first step in mobilisation. Um, just on your point about farm and Ken's already about how others have been engaged in the first 10 minutes, and there is that um, Obama, when he made that announcement, he also had a lengthy letter from a whole lot of major industries within the US. It wasn't written to Central Congress or Washington, it was actually written to all of the state um, leaders saying, We want to work with you to help implement what is required to achieve these reductions. It's a very interesting way through working with business to actually lock in some of that continuity. Mm-hmm. Well, the two biggest states in America are the states with biggest emissions, mm-hmm. uh, California and Texas. <coughs> California's got a modestly kind of that called the Global Act, thanks to Governor Schwarzenegger. And although the former Governor of Texas, Rick Perry, is a denier, he oversaw a massive growth of wind power in Texas. This is the best, and that goes perfectly in Queen So there's changes happening in some of the really important states, despite the long-term progress. Okay. Could, could I just add that the problem that you pointed out isn't unique to this um, this bottom-up approach that's happening in the Paris. When we saw the other protocol from the treaty, Canada reached its obligations massively, and there was no consequences. So I, I, I think you know it, it's it's not germane to what's happening in Paris. The risk that we under any circumstances. Yeah, I would, I would just make one, one, uh, a couple of quick comments um, to, to both questions. The first is that I don't know whether anyone noticed, but on the 11th of August in Australia, there's something quite fantastic happened when the Abbott government announced its target, is that the 
effectively what we end up with is a situation where all three major political parties in Australia have a climate change policy platform, which is actually, uh, apart from a brief window of about six weeks back in 2008, was the first time we've actually reached that rather modest plateau. So I, but I didn't know that the we should be celebrated because now the conversation we're having is about the competitive tension between the policies, and that is a significant shift in the Australian debate. I definitely think that you can't rely upon once legislation is implemented that it can't be repealed. Um, being on the um, someone who was on the carbon trading desk in the bank for, for the period 2007 to 2012, I can definitely rule that out. It's definitely a live option that has real world implications. You can unwind an incredibly complex piece of legislation that flows through the entire economy, and you will have impacts in seven emissions. We saw it play out. The, the other one that I would make though is around this this patchwork built bottom-up response. I think the days where you had the clearly announceable win from an international treaty, as I said before, are gone to some extent. I think we're in a messy post-treaty world of everybody has to do their bit. And, and in terms of activism, I mean, I, I would look around the room and I would say, what are we all doing in terms of our personal lives in, 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 in reducing emissions? I mean, from a finance perspective, I mean, you know, how many people know Actually, how many people even know where the super is for a start? But secondly, how many people know what the investment approach is of their super funds when it comes to climate change? How many people have actually asked their super fund how they are managing their money to, to help transition to a low carbon economy? How many people have asked their super funds to remove their own money from carbon intensive investments? Because it's actually by consumer driven engagement with companies that you'll have a lot more change than large international regulatory frameworks which super funds are not necessarily obliged to respond to directly. It's actually through the bottom-up approach is actually incredibly powerful, not just in terms of like the political activism and, and the political engagement is important, but rather also through all of the myriad decisions you make every day in your personal life that affect the economy and the world around you as well. Thank you. We'll take another question or two. <laughs> Maybe or two. Um, I'll take one from gentleman with uh, grey hair, he's short, lady with also has grey hair, <laughs> and um, a man wearing glasses and a white top. Uh, um, my question is about Mr. Smith. Um, John Bowles from Free 15. Uh, my question is about the Mission Spade. Do you still believe in that, or do we now feel that it's been um, so discredited and um, undermined by the Collapse of the trading price in Europe that it's no longer an effective mechanism and that we need to go to tax instead? Well, trading worked in Australia. Um, it was the first time that you saw a downward spike uh, in emissions in the energy sector in, um, well, 15 years. And then when, that, when it was removed, you saw an immediate uptick in emissions in the energy sector. But so that's a tax No, fixed price and emissions trading scheme. And electricity traders work on a full looking basis as well. I mean, quarterly, but then over the, a few years as well. So they weren't just looking at what today's price were, they were looking at what it's going to be in the future. You also saw changes in behaviour across the whole supply chain as well. So it was, it was, an, it was the invisible hand of the market working in an actual way as opposed to a few other things. In terms of Europe, prices back up again. Like, we've spent so many years like um, paying out the European trading scheme that no one's noticed that they're doing it's uh, back up to uh, around $16 a month. Um, it was down much lower than that. It has been up to around $32, $35 Australian. But they have been doing, taking a lot of structural steps to remove supply and boost it up again. 
But not only my point being that prices of work, um, markets, markets work, no policy works on its own. Um, and also, um, power failures have no indication of future performance. I get sick of the sound myself saying that Lord Stern said it well, which is the carbon price of those emissions trading on tax is necessary, but not that. There are plenty of things that are price insensitive, even if you can afford that price. Good job, we've talked about that sometimes. Maybe you'll be great. <laughs> Hi, from the Brownhead Lady. Um, I'm uh, from a new group called Citizens Climate Lobby in Australia. And um, I, I, I'm amazed that there's always uh, this language of it's either a carbon tax or it's an emissions trading scheme. I was wondering if the panel has a third, a third option, another third way, um, which is to price carbon at the source rather than emissions, and then distribute all the money raised to the citizenry could be a very politically um, good way to go in a country which has been so, you know, retarded in its response. <laughs> um, Robin called for citizen mobilisation. Um, Nicola called for political will. Um, I can't think of a better way to build political will than for local groups to form citizens' climate lobbying. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if the panellists have heard of it and what their response is to that kind of carbon pricing. There have been proposals for um, tax and dividends or tax trade dividends for the money for the government fund to kickstart new renewable energy to go back to citizens. Um, and then other ways will be put before Congress. Um, the Germans have been back at the moment because their sort of reputation being a leader that the last couple of years emissions have gone up. Part of the position effect. But it wouldn't have happened to have the counter market not collapsed in in Europe, which made prices of coal much cheaper than gas. So Angela bought last year of December, she sort of would have liked to meet the target to be a woman for work, um, suggested imposing a tax on lignite coal. And there was a huge backlash in Germany because it's really complicated to fight in Victoria. So the unions and the big utilities fought back. So they're now paying these coal fire stations to, to stay reserved for a period of time. That's quite an expense. But for the Germans, it's still a point that if the money bought in the side shall take out, get rid of one special up, it builds up um, over time. And they can phase this out. They don't see their ultimate future in coal. They understand that they need it, which is very different to what we have here. So that was not a tax, a proposed tax at source, but it doesn't work very well. But if you take California, the price there's quite not very high. That's because it's accompanied by a whole suite of command and control regulations. And so it doesn't have to do so much in the evening. And if the demand of um, clean power plan gets lots of money, you see them. A lot of discretion we can say is how we do this with technology standards, tax, capital trade, and so we can have all these wonderful experiments and over time there'll be policy learning. Because California learned from Europe, Europe learned from earlier failures, we'll learn from ours. So there's this policy diffusion policy learning taking place. And it's right, carbon price is not still a bullet, the damn book started before the nines. It's really the space of the state. Of course, accepting it was a tax. And each price, a 50 cent 
system one has training systems is not detected. So that to one, if you explain one, why is there a difference? She should have just given Tony a lecture on economics and wanted to shut up. She doesn't want it. And I told you that protest is involved. Now, what you're describing, though, is, is almost what uh, has happened in British Columbia and Canada now. They've got a $35 yeah. ton carbon tax, which is rebate as the income tax um, cut. For the community as a whole. There's been barely a, a word of dissent over that tax, but it's higher than the Australian tax significantly. There was a fight to begin with, it was used by a liberal government. That's right, but, but the, but left was, was, the left didn't like it, which yeah. is kind of weird, but quite right, they didn't like it. But, but that's, at the moment, that's just accepted, and it's about $35 a ton, and it sold as an income tax cut, so we are so right. But could I just say, in addition, that there's a possibility, even under direct action, for delivering a cap-and-trade scheme. There is this safeguard mechanism in the indirect action. So potentially any Prime Minister without changing anything in terms of the regulation and the policy package could introduce a cap-and-trade scheme for Australia. Yeah, I guess I think the proposal is I think it's fantastic, um, but it needs to be part of a broader suite of policies. Um, and so uh, around renewable energy incentives for more solar, more wind, um, and, and a whole series of other things that, that you know, need to be on the table. Um, if I could sort of push back a little bit on, on the idea about the carbon tax, I think at the time, I think it seemed very much like accepting it was a carbon tax was a really, was a, was a misstep and allowed sort of uh, toxic debate. Oh, you know, it was, she said it, she, you know, uh, it was a tax after all. I think if Julie Gillard hadn't done that, it would still have been painted as a tax by, by uh, you know, the Liberals and Tony Abbott, and I'm not sure that we would have had a very different result. Um, the, the kind of foundation of that is the economic and political reality that we're talking about. I think that we sometimes get hung up on messaging a little bit too much, um, and I think in that case, potentially, that might be one of those examples. Thanks, Nicola. Gentleman in the white shirt. If you could just say your name. Hello, my name is Jim from the Five Dock Climate Group. Uh, my question is related to the fact that the nations of the world are being asked to make commitments based on the assumption that humans are the dominant cause of global warming and climate change. The consensus, therefore, has to have exactly the same conclusion. And in all the studies I've read, the conclusion does not match the question. Uh, for example, the latest one, the Cook et al, uh, of the 11,000 odd papers reviewed, can I, can I, can I, before we go on, Basically, the question is the consensus does not seem to be overwhelming uh, on the, the final commitment. The, to rephrase it, the um, degree of positivity of the consensus papers uh, is nowhere near 100%, it's in fact closer to 1.5%. So, uh, I'm, I'm probably a bit maybe. I don't understand the question. Are you talking about the efficacy of the The conclusions uh, that come out in the media don't 
don't seem to be what the famous on consensus that human activity causes catastrophic global warming and climate change. And you don't believe that basically global warming is unmerished human issues? No. Okay. Thank you. The, the consensus papers okay. don't seem to okay. uh, support it. I think we can probably take it that we do. <laughs> Isn't it time to have proper debate with uh, well-known climate sceptics like Ian Climate and Bob Carter? There haven't been any. Open open ones. Well, we have a single sentence answer from each member of the panel. Nicole. Um, I, I think the I think the other short answer is no. Okay, thank you, Tim. <laughs> Where's the fire? He's vanished. What's the meaning of all that? Has to be vanished. I think on a on a precautionary principle basis and on a probabilistic basis, then it's worth responding. Absolutely, I think I'm sure it's a day not to see, but I would be interested to have a conversation about not really matters to because sometimes I think it's not science. I think something else is present. I there are natural contrarians and good scientists are skeptics, so I'm open skepticism. But um, it's, it used to be 97% percent it's now 99% of climate scientists concur that it is um, not entirely induced, but certainly significantly enough for us to have a further mission. But we couldn't have a conversation about basic values, so I think that's what's going on here. Another question. Uh, gentleman, uh, Mr. Gray Top. Hi, my name is Robert, and I'm a member of ARC, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. And um, your comments, Robin, about the national contributions and the possible repository of data make me wonder about um, everything particularly cultural change that's got us there toward perhaps some sort of Olympics for climate, where we actually, instead of just having a target to by this date we'll have this, like look at you mentioned Australia and New Zealand, endless sporting rivalry between them. Why not actually try and see where, where we are to achieve? Who's going to have a better carbon budget next year, the year after? That could be one down the day. But there are two conservative prime ministers who both now claim that they take this thing seriously. Well, show us numbers. That's a great idea. I think that's what we're all trying to figure out how to do the green beauty content. And the versus competition. That's exactly what we want. And I think it's really, really important to do that. Um, at the moment, the time change negotiations, we have the Fossil of the Day Award, which can international have. And it's like, I don't know, have a podium, one, two, three, let's get into whatever would be the spoiler of the day. Canada has a lifetime. It's saying what the big goal for the whole conference that we know. But this is just about being more encouraging. Because I think that, I think it's all about um, playing for national reputation, sense of national, national virtue. And you could possibly even begin to change some national entities about that. You know, an international entity is constructed to say that some states respond to international norms in ways that change their identity and they redefine their interests. And I think I've seen that happening. It's not, it's not happening in Russia, right? I know that. It is happening in some countries that they take very seriously. And I think, you know, prizes, rewards, encouragement, festivals, all those sorts of things, I think will help to get that kind of positive kind of Good idea.
And I'd like to know uh, how do we get intergenerational communication and equity at the forefront of these discussions because you'd be continually uh, left out of conversations about climate change and it is our future. So I just want to know why, in particular in the lead up to COP21, why there's never any youth on panels such as the one tonight and lots of other events. I feel like you're calling us all. <laughs> I think absolutely. I mean, this is one of the, the key uh, moral uh, components of, of, of climate change is that the actions of past generations are having such, well, has such a negative impact on those that have no responsibility for it at all. Um, I won't say much more on that except to emphasize that point and to point out that um, there are, especially in Australia, uh, youth groups that are working incredibly well uh, in, in this space. One of the um, you know, best allies that, that we've ever had as an organization around climate, and in particular around um, the, the Galilee Basin climate has been um, AYCC, the Australian uh, Youth Climate Coalition, who do fantastic work. Um, so, uh, you know, um, I think we, we, we can always do more, um, but there is, there is a lot of it out there. And I'm a part of the organization called Voices, which sends our students. Um, 
I'm a management at the University. And tonight I heard from you about policies, investment, about gadgets, and about mobilization and going to marches. Um, why has nobody of you mentioned affluence? I could show you at least a dozen papers that show that over the last 20 years, and despite the decoupling, the recent decoupling, affluence as measured as per capita consumption or consumerism is by far the main driver of global emissions. If nobody's mentioned it, why not? This is sort of some sort of holy cow that we can't touch. Why doesn't anybody say, let's just consume half of what we consume today? Everyone is worried. Why not? That is exactly uh, what is happening with this decoupling. If you look at why it's happening, part of it is new wind and solar coming into the electricity market and so forth. But the other half is the billions and billions of actions that so many people like people in this room have taken. They're changing the life lives to more energy efficient models, putting PV on their roof, insulating their house, going the bike to work. All of that has driven down demand for electricity. We've had a decrease in the electricity market in Australia five years in a row now. And peak oil use is way behind most developed countries. So you're quite right that affluence, that overuse of resources, is being addressed by increasing efficiency. That's a really valid solution. There's a, uh, an interesting um, term that's often used in commodities markets where you talk about some um, soft commodities uh, growth in emerging economies, which is basically like food and meat, and they call it the wealth effect, whereby on a capital basis as an economy, um, industrialises and, and you have the emergence of the middle class meat consumption goes through the roof. And of course being financial markets they're looking at it primarily from the basis of uh, extra markets for exports but also extra markets for impact on grain prices because we meat needs more grain. So, um, and then, so they're looking at this, as I was sitting in this meeting room where people were looking at uh, projections around the um, industrialisation of the emerging economy and they were walking to this linear set of assumptions of as people get wealthier, they will eat more meat, therefore they will need more cows, therefore we will grow more grain, therefore in five years time we should cut the cost. And then someone said, but why will they eat more meat? And so it actually evolved into this interesting discussion around because that's the way it's always been in the past. And there's a direct cause and effect correlation. And then it actually ended up in a, what was supposed to be an hour discussion, ended up being two and a half hour discussion is people started unpacking the assumptions sitting behind some of these growth projections and actually came to the conclusion that in that economy at that time, in, in terms of changing behaviour, you could no longer make that assumption that as you got wealthier you would necessarily eat more meat at the same level that you had in the past because behaviours were changing. So it's a complicated step through version, a real world version of exactly what Tim was just saying, that not we are getting better and more efficient in the way we do everything. So affluence is not necessarily a direct correlation with high emissions growth, and it shouldn't be. But you shouldn't discount the rights of people who actually become affluent as well. But they just don't have to do it in a high carbon, high carbon intensive way anymore. Thanks, Anna. Um, Robin, and then Nicola, and the final word from both of you in the last wrap up. Sure. There was a film in the book called Affluenza, which looks at the other side of affluence. So it marks the state of the problem of the book the original affluent society, which was about coming together with society. Because they had so much time for leisure and for spiritual, religious pursuits because of the way they organised their lives. I think we definitely need to move towards more discerning consumption. 
Um, and we need to rethink the way we measure prosperity and progress. And I've had to wait for the last several decades. It's just not got to do the system of national penalty. And until we do, we need to think that wealth brings happiness. We know it doesn't. And everyone knows that deep down. And most of us are very tired for and we'd love to have that extra time. And I think if we keep thinking about this in a deep way, we can move towards the world. We can hopefully start debating how we can move towards the world. Um, where we can actually enjoy true, I thought, true prosperity. Um, you know, a life that's rich in means and rich in ends. Because all of us feel like we're a little bit expensive. I hate going buying like a freezer cartridge. We call it webs of, of production and consumption that aren't entirely about making, but we do have much in the power. And particularly when we organize collectively, we can start sending messages back up to the chain to say, we don't like this. Um, I think the patterns of consumption around the world are clearly part of the problem. Um, there's no doubt about that. We have economically limited resources, uh, and we have to recognize that in, in the way that we do our lives and plan our economies and, and so on. Um, that said, I think the thing that makes me a little bit um, cautious, a little bit nervous about the line thinking it's all just if we just kind of build less, consume less, lower our ambitions, then that's the way that we're going to survive. I, I don't think that's what we're, I don't think that's what we're, what we're here for. I think we are a, civil, a race of civilization that's meant to seek after knowledge, that's meant to explore, we're meant to seek out new frontiers. And I think it would be a shame if, um, we, if our hunger for those sort of things is limited by the, the uh, Crisis that we face at the moment. There are innovative uh, ways to continue to, to have that vision and yet live in a sustainable way on the planet. And that, that's what I think uh, we're starting to see and we, we, we'll get more of it as, as we go on. Nicole, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to conclude this evening. Um, I don't want it to conclude like an a, a, um, Oscar acceptance speech, but I need to thank 12 people. I need to thank Mary Paul from Sydney Ideas for all of her support for this event. I need to thank Michelle Santan from the Sydney Environment Institute, who was just brilliant in bringing all the logistics together. I need to thank Mindy Baker from the Sydney Democracy Network, who's just um, a superhuman power of organisation. I want to thank David Schlossberg and Chris Wright for their support of me in this event. Um, and I also want to thank um, all the members of the panel. I want to thank Robin, I want to thank Emma, I want to thank Tim, I want to thank Nicola. And I also want to thank my son, Ben, for taking the photographs this evening. And I want to thank my two daughters who are up the back and helped me hold up the washing this afternoon. With that, <laughs> um, thank you very much.